proposal. Proposal. <laughs> Enlisted in. <laughs> List Ted. List Ted. <laughs> Who is List Ted? This sounds like this sounds like a dot com era like could have made a million dollars. Yes. Kind of a website. List.ted. List.ted. <laughs> it's basically Craigslist but reversed and it's Ted instead yeah. of Craig. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will discuss movement of the EPA's proposal for PFOA and PFOS to be listed as a hazardous substance under CERCLA, as well as a $132 million investment in the National Estuary Program. Finally, our interview this month will be with Glenn Barnes. Glenn is the Director of Water Finance Assistance and works with numerous small utilities throughout the United States. We talked about the challenges facing small systems, how they are trying to adapt to the new normal, and how workforce concerns are nearing a tipping point. But first, let's get into some news. I wanted to start off first with the EPA proposal on PFOA and PFOS as a hazardous substance. According to the Association of State Drinking Water Administrators, the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, OMB, has completed its review of a proposal from the U.S. EPA to designate PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances under the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act, more commonly known as either CERCLA or Superfund. While this proposal is not yet available to use and review and for us to share our thoughts on it, I can share some insights from my conversations with folks in associations on what they were pushing for with on this and what it could mean for utilities in the future. So first, circular designation is a big deal and it would directly impact every utility that has, is, or will deal with PFOA and PFOS in their systems. Associations have been seeking an exemption uh, for utilities within this law so that the liability for discharging or disposing of these chemicals would not fall on the utility's shoulders, particularly because utilities do not create these chemicals. They are simply treating them and removing them from water so that it's safe for the environment. But if they are now held liable for how it's being disposed exposed and how it's being destroyed, it creates a whole new set of hurdles for those utilities to jump through to make sure it works, especially if it's designated as a hazardous substance. So they've been trying to seek this exemption. I'm not entirely sure if that exemption went through, but it also being on CERCLA also opens up the opportunity to go after those polluters for those chemicals because it's part of a regulatory environment now, because it's part of this particular act. So there is some benefits to it as well. It's just a matter of where that goes. One last bit, little bit of thing that I wanted to touch on before moving on from this is the impact that it could have on the biosolid sides of things. Often when we're talking about PFAS, we're talking about the drinking water, and that's really where a lot of the focus has been on the regulatory side this year from what we've heard so far. However, PFAS and biosolids is a big issue, particularly because PFAS or biosolids are land applied in a lot of communities throughout the United States, as long as they meet certain uh, requirements being class A or class B biosolids levels. So if it were a hazardous substance, if PFAS were in biosolids, if land application were in use, you can see kind of the implication that creates for an entirely different industry, meaning agriculture, where they're using that to spread on their lands as fertilizer and yeah, it could be very, very, a very complex issue that will have dramatic ramifications if it were to go through 
as, as a hazardous substance with utility liability. So anyway, that's something I, I just wanted to touch on, but there is also some more good news in terms of funding. Uh, Katie, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the end of July, the US EPA announced a $132 million investment for the National Estuary Program from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law over the next five years to restore estuaries of national significance, fund projects to restore climate resilience, prioritize equity and more across 28 estuaries along the Atlantic, Gulf and Pacific Coast and in Puerto Rico. This is all according to an EPA press release. Um, for those that might not know, the National Estuary Program began in 1987 and is a place-based program that has funded projects focusing on restoring water quality. This specific funding will accelerate work on comprehensive conservation management plans, which are structured frameworks for protecting and restoring estuary resources and meeting water quality needs. Um, so yeah, some more good funding news. It seems like we're getting you know more and more press releases about funding coming through the bipartisan infrastructure law, and so we will uh, be sure to keep keep tabs on how that's all trickling down. Yeah, I know that there are some headwinds still on certain, on mm -hmm. that funding, and states are still working through some implementation. BABA, Build America, Buy America is holding some things up, but it's good to see yeah. stuff like this still moving forward. One of the things I wanted to touch on with this too, I saw that uh, I. Conser comprehensive conservation management plans made me think of the drought, made me think of the recent drought news too, in terms of the funding mm -hmm. that's out there on that front too. So there is a lot moving even outside just the the water sector in terms of funding too. And I think that that's uh, important to note that it's a, a wider, there's an, a wider economic trend toward funding reaching the people it needs to reach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, speaking of drought, the house did pass a, uh, you know, a drought act, but it has, I think it's, you know, kind of stalled right now, but definitely there's some, some things in the work, it sounds like. So. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, moving on to our interview this month, we had our interview with Glenn Barnes. He's the director of water finance assistance. And we talked a lot about small systems, the challenges they're facing and how they're trying to overcome those. So on to that interview now. So I'm here now with Glenn Barnes. He is the director of water finance assistance. And we were talking a little bit before this call about small systems and just how many there were. And thanks so much for being here, Glenn. Um, why don't we start with that? Like how many small systems are there in the United States? I think people don't really understand the volume that there are out there. Yeah, Bob, well, first off, thank you for having me on. And I'm always excited to talk about uh, the universe of small water systems in the US. So. If you look at it from the EPA regulatory perspective, so EPA regulates certain entities, you have to serve a certain number of people with water, a certain number of days per year and treat the water. It's somewhere in the vicinity of 150,000. Now that number seems hugely overwhelming, but 100,000 of those are what's called non-community systems. So that, that is if an office building or a church or a rest stop on a highway has a well and they have a bathroom and they serve water to people, they get regulated as long as there's 25 people drinking it in, in an average day. But for the community water systems, the ones that serve people where they live, there's probably about 45 or 50,000 of them. 90% of those serve under 10,000 people, which is the EPA and USDA definition for small. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a little bit of a confusing point here because a system is just a water source treatment, a distribution network. It's not the same as a utility. 
So in some cases, a utility can have one system, a utility could have five systems, a utility could have 800 systems obscene in some cases. So there's not 45,000 utilities, but there are 45,000 individual water distribution systems in the U.S. serving people where they live. I think most people are familiar with, oh, my city has one, my town has one, or, or this private large investor-owned company has one. But they may not realize that a little homeowners association with 35 homes may have its own federally regulated system or Joe's mobile home park may have its own system. And obviously, those systems have to meet the same health and safety standards as as any other system. We, we don't want people to drink bad water just because they live in a tiny community or, a, you know, a mobile home park. But financially speaking, that could be really challenging if you've only got 25 or 35 households to share in the cost versus, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of accounts to share in the cost. Mm -hmm. And that leads pretty well into kind of like the next question that I had here, which is like, what is kind of the current mentality? Again, we were talking before the call and you're like, just get through the day. <laughs> but yeah, what, I mean, what, what are what, what are small utilities thinking on the day to day? And then are they thinking long term? And what are their thoughts when they're thinking in that way? So I, I think one of the big challenges for, for a small community water system, as we talked about, it is kind of getting through the day because they've got to make sure that they can provide safe and reliable water today to their customers. Um, they've got to get bills out. They've got to read meters. They've got to do all the things that every utility has to do. They have to keep up their certifications. They have to go to training. They have to um, you know, pay their bills and take care of all the day-to-day uh, work and and that takes up a lot of the time for these smaller communities because again they don't have huge staffs of people to help with this you know whereas a larger utility may have one person just focused on paying bills or several people several people um, getting bills out to customers and taking payments and providing customer service this all ends up falling on a single individual a lot of times at a smaller utility. So yeah, they're certainly thinking about the future. They're probably hearing bits and pieces about WED and PFAS and other changes in regulation. They're probably vaguely aware of all the infrastructure funding that's out there or the LIWAP program, maybe the Perdate on a webinar. But a lot of times the day-to-day -day focus is about serving their community, which is something that many of them do very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we do see, obviously, some small communities have SIDWIS violations, health and safety violations, more likely than not, they're going to have violations of not getting their paperwork in because, again, of the, the capacity of staff. But day in and day out, a lot of them are focused on serving that community. And also, many of them are, are running multiple utility services. It's not just necessarily drinking water. It might be drinking water, wastewater, could be solid waste could be they keep up the cemetery, could be the roads <laughs> in town. I'm not joking. But these, oh, I know. You know these I know. are all things we've seen. And it's it's a lot. You know, it's a lot to put on somebody. And so, yes, they're certainly thinking about the future, but finding the time to invest in those activities to really properly prepare for the future can sometimes be a challenge. 
Yeah, that 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 is really interesting. And my background before I was doing water and wastewater reporting and stuff, I was a general assignment reporter in a small town, ten thousand people and fewer. And so I saw at the city board meetings that there's the one guy who comes and he's like, "All right, we're gonna do roads." This guy comes up, goes back to his seat. Now we're gonna do this. The same guy kept coming up for all the different things because he wore all the hats. So I I I understand exactly what you're talking about. And, and I think, you know, let me give you an example of a small community that, that we've done some work with over the last couple of years. You know, they are some of the nicest and hardest working and most caring people I've ever met. You know, they are really determined to serve their community so well, but they have water, wastewater, and solid waste service. They have about 350 homes they serve and, you know, maybe uh, two dozen non-residential accounts, mostly schools and government buildings, that, that type of, uh, those types of facilities, they have five people working for the <laughs> utility. And, you know, two of them are what my colleague Alora calls unicorns, because they are these magical creatures who can do the work of three or four people at once, because they're so talented, they're so tied in with the utility, and, you know, this is a utility that doesn't have problems. They do a really good job serving their, their community. But the issue is going to be, well, what happens if one or both of those people leave? And how are they going to replace them? It's very hard to find somebody that maybe has that level of skill. So oftentimes, as somebody that provides technical assistance, and there are a lot of great organizations doing that around the country, what the biggest benefit I can provide to that community sometimes is my time, because it's not that they don't know that they should do asset management or a rate study or a succession plan. But what we're able to give them is, you know, 60, 80, 100 hours of time that they just don't have in the day. It's not that they don't know that they need to do it, but the day to day task of running that utility can be really overwhelming. And so it's great that they can tap into resources to help them plan better for the future and that outside expertise. Yeah, my workforce continues. To, it shows up in every conversation that I have lately. I think it's it, it is a vital and crucial topic that everyone seems to be really, really grasping at straws at right now to solve. Um, but hopefully we can get some more um, answers to that in the future. And maybe that's part of the infrastructure funding, because I know there is some workforce development stuff in there. It doesn't necessarily solve the legacy knowledge aspect. But um, but speaking of the funding, yeah, how, how are these utilities looking at this funding? Is this something that's even on their radar? Do they even have the capacity to think about, like, where to work? What could I pull down? Yeah, so th this is a great question, right? We have that we have this unprecedented amount of infrastructure funding coming uh, for water and wastewater utilities, and we have a you know a very strong message from EPA to say, look, we expect you states and and territories who run the state revolving fund program, we expect you to get some of this money in the hands of small and disadvantaged communities. But then the trick is, okay, how do we actually implement that? How are we going to be able to help some of these communities? So I would say, you know, a, a lot of these small communities have heard that the money is out there. We see questions coming in. I'm sure other technical assistance providers are seeing questions come in about, hey, I've heard there's a lot of money. It's been on the news. How do we access it? What do we need to do? But it will be challenging for them uh, to 
be able to dedicate staff resources to the application process, which is, you know, if, if you're not familiar, you know, applying for some of these subsidized governmental programs, it's not the kind of thing that takes five minutes. It's it's a lengthy application process. It often requires preliminary engineering reports. You have to get yourself in pretty good financial shape, even for a grant, let alone for a loan. So the good news here is that EPA is recognizing that this is the situation, and they want to provide as much help as possible to these small communities. So they have uh, put out competition grants uh, to, to basically uh, fund several different technical assistance providers to go work with these small communities directly to help them with funding applications, to help them get their house in order, to help them with grant management if they or loan management if they are successful. And so I think those programs, and there's multiple pots of money, some focused on drinking water, some on wastewater, some on stormwater, some on all of the above, that those programs, when they get funded and get up and running, there are going to be a lot of great organizations, I'm sure, able to go out and help these small communities. But when you look at the volume of small communities out there, certainly there's not going to be a technical assistance provider for every single one of them. So they're still going to need to be proactive about finding this available help when it becomes uh, when it comes online to be able to take advantage of that to help with their applications. Mm -hmm. Now, a, a number of these communities, you know, they've, they've applied for SRF before, perhaps a number of them have applied for funding for USDA, or at least the community has, if not specifically the water system. So they're not unfamiliar. The smaller the community is, the more likely it is that it's going to need a grant or a loan to pay for infrastructure. If you have 300 households, it's very hard to build up your bank account to pay for a couple of million dollar piece of infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the the other concern too, right? Is that we're looking at inflation. We're seeing BABA also being implemented on that SR, on the SRF side, although there's currently like waivers and stuff in place. But you know, that's going to be in the future. That's going to potentially increase the red tape that's involved. Might increase pricing even further. So there is this concern too about like, all right, well. It costs this much now, but what's it going to cost in like five years? Like that's going to balloon even more. So even if you budgeted, started budgeting today, in five years you might not be able to make the right amount of money that you need for your loan. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And and I think you know inflation is really a challenge for smaller communities because you have to understand a little bit about the demographics that are going on. You know, we we talk about how in America we are urbanizing as a country, right? More people are moving into urban and suburban areas or the suburban and exurban areas are, are expanding, if you will, into what was previously rural. Mm -hmm. But you've got to think about the other side of that coin. Now, if you're that small town, well, those people going to the city have to come from somewhere. Sometimes they come from other cities, but oftentimes they're coming from smaller communities. So a lot of these small communities are seeing, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we had young families in our community. Well, now the kids grew up, they graduated high school and they left. They you know, got a job or they went to college or they, they're not living here anymore. And the parents may still be in that same house, but now they're retired and on a fixed income and not working. So the number of connections hasn't changed, but the population may have gone down. And the income availability of those people have come down. And as I mentioned, because of economies of scale, you don't have that many people to spread cost out over. 
it's already a little more expensive to operate as a small utility as it would be for a larger utility. So that's going to be a real challenge. Now you add inflation on top of that. So the cost of operating is going up. And the unfortunate reality is that when you tie all of those together, the risk is that some of these needed infrastructure improvements get pushed out farther and farther. And then, of course, the farther you push them out, the more expensive they become, not just because of inflation, but because it's always cheaper to replace something proactively than it is to replace it in a crisis. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to pivot a little bit so we can get through some a couple of other things, too. From a regulatory perspective, um, what are some of the things that are top of mind? I, I imagine I'm thinking PFAS is probably really high on the list right now. Letting copper rule, I'm sure, is constantly something that's on, on everyone's minds, too. But what 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 do you see as kind of like the top things that uh, these small systems are keeping top of mind on the regulatory side? Well, and, and I would say, um, Bob, that I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, PFAS and lead would definitely be high up on that list or any kind of changing regulation. Because as I said, you know, regardless of the size of the community, regardless of the size of the water system, all community water systems in the U.S. have to meet exactly the same regulation. So if a large community has to do a lead service line inventory and replace lines, so does a small community. And so they're looking at the changing regulatory landscape just as much as any other utility is and thinking about, okay, how might this change our cost in the future? How might this change our ability to continue to provide safe and reliable water in the future? And again, I think the attitude is not like, oh, another regulation, another regulation. It's saying, okay, well, some people might have that thought. But <laughs> But I think for the most part, they say, okay, now we're starting to understand PFAS. We didn't understand that before. Again, I care about my community. I want to keep people safe and healthy. What do I need to do? But again, how am I going to pay for that? So I, I think every utility I have ever worked with, large or small, when the regulatory environment is shifting, which it is right now, and that's a good thing because we're helping to promote public health and getting the regulations that we need. Everybody's going to be worried about money. But again, because of some of these capacity issues for smaller communities, I think it hits them a little bit harder than it's going to hit some of the larger communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, what do you see for the future of small utilities? How do you see the water industry changing in that in this particular arena of small systems? And how do you see them evolving over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And, you know, you, you brought up workforce. And so I think that's something that we need to go back to a little bit because the, you know, the silver tsunami is is here. You know, like we've been talking about it for a long time. I feel like 10 years or more we've been talking about it. But the um, I think the pandemic accelerated some of those retirements that have maybe been deferred. And then at the same time, the great resignation is hitting the water sector just as hard as, as any other type of business, I feel like. And so if you're a little town of 500, it might be difficult for you to really maintain proper staffing when you're competing with larger utilities that might be able to pay more or offer, you know, different quality of life or a different lifestyle, perhaps, um, than, than the folks that you're going to be working with. So again, you know, I, I think about the small community in Iowa, 
woman named Cheryl Bear is the town clerk. She works 16 hours a week. She actually became a certified water operator to keep <laughs> their, their community running. I mean, she is like my superhero in life. You know, there's a that's lot good. of that that's going to happen of whoever is there is going to step up and do what they can. And I think that's going to be big. But then I think different types of partnerships and regionalization may come into play here. Um, you know, a lot of communities don't necessarily want to give up control of their of their water utility um, for, you know, for a variety of reasons. But obviously, partnerships and regionalization is, is a broad spectrum. And so, you know, we may see an increase in smaller communities using contract operators or maybe sharing contract operators with neighbors, um, more opportunities for systems to work together. And and some, if if it is their desire, um, may try to get out of the water business and I, either merge with a neighboring system or, you know, sell to a private water company that aggregates systems. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see some of that shifting landscape, but certainly, you know, the workforce issue and accessing the infrastructure funding, I think, are two things that probably keep a lot of folks up at night. And again, you know, you've got these, these wonderful people who have been there for a long time, they've run their utilities, they want to retire, but they want to make sure they're passing it into the right hands that the, the community will continue to be served well into the future. I think that's really what they're thinking about right now over the next couple of years is how do we make this transition? And some of them are being kind enough to stay on and, uh, you know, maybe a little longer than they want to to make that happen. But at some point, the reality is we're just going to need some more people working in water. And, you know, I think we've got to continue to encourage both younger people, but also mid-career folks who maybe are not working in water. Um, I do a lot of work with um, uh, encouraging veterans who are leaving military service to come into the water sector. So I think we're going to need more people to come in because, again, that large number of systems that need somebody who knows what they're doing, needs a certified person, that's going to be something that is going to be a really big issue for small communities to continue to address over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Lots to think about. I think workforce is going to be, well, we should talk about workforce another time too. Go, go a little bit that. deeper. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a big topic I think we'll be talking about over the next multiple multitude of years at this point but thank you so much glenn for taking the time with me today i really appreciate you sharing all this information it was a great conversation yeah you're very welcome bob thank you so much for having me thanks so much glenn for taking the time to talk with me it was great to reconnect with you actually since we last talked at the at our water pavilion back in Louisville. So it was really kind of cool to catch up with you, learn a little bit more about the small utilities. Looking forward to talking with you more, especially on that workforce side of things and trying to find some some cool or innovative ways that people are trying to address that. But onto housekeeping, I'll start first with WWD. Once more, would like to have you check out our YouTube channel. We're at nearly 100 subscribers right now. We have more than 100 videos on there with industry experts talking about topics ranging from PFAS to expanding into the wastewater business to include wastewater services. So visit bit.ly slash YouTube WWD to watch, like, and subscribe. Also, I mentioned in the news section, the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act, or CERCLA. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about that, we actually have an article on WWD's website right now 
called What is the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act? It goes through the entire act and kind of explains what its intent is and how it is used. You can also find a link to that in our show notes. Katie, what's going on with Stormwater? So over on SWS, we are still accepting top project nominations. So the nomination forms are open until September 5th. So if you've worked on a unique or challenging project in the last 18 months, go ahead and submit it at www.eastrollmotor.com slash awards slash top dash projects dash nomination dot form. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.